I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB Podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Schatz. My guest today is the Paris-based intellectual historian Enzo Traverso, who teaches at Cornell. Over the last three decades, Traverso, who grew up in Italy but writes in French, has published an extraordinary series of studies of the 20th century, including Marxism and the Jewish Question, The Origins of Nazi Violence, Blood and Fire, and the End of Jewish Modernity. He writes in a tradition of dissident Marxism with echoes of Gramsci, Isaac Deutscher, and above all, Walter Benjamin. But his work is also distinguished by its creative engagement with thinkers outside the Marxist tradition, notably Hannah Arendt, Carl Schmitt, and Edward Said. To read Enzo's writing is to experience the urgency, the still-burning presence of the past in our lives today. His latest book, Revolution and Intellectual History, published by Verso, is no exception. It's a wide-ranging, remarkably ambitious study of revolutionary passions, images, and ideas ranging across the French and Haitian revolutions, the Russian and Chinese revolutions, the anti-colonial revolutions in the global south, and not least, the experiences of revolutionary exiles, outcasts, and pariahs, the men and women who continued in defeat and sometimes in despair to dream of a world transformed. Revolution is also the first book Enzo has written in English, and it's a work of elegance and admirable lucidity. Enzo, you were born in 1957 and raised in Piedmont. Your father was a communist. Your mother was a left-wing Catholic. This was hardly a decade after the end of the Second World War. Italy, of course, had been profoundly shaped by the experience of fascism and then the partisan resistance. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences growing up in Italy in that period and uh, how the notion of revolution, the subject of your new, new book, resonated during that period? Yeah, I was born in Italy in uh, 1957, and I grew up in a country which uh, was politically dominated by the so-called two churches, (laughs) the Communist Party on the one hand and the Christian democracy on the other hand. So this depiction is, of course, a simplification, but it's not uh, completely wrong. So these two political forces were not only the pillars of uh, the institutions and of uh, the political system, but uh, they deeply shaped uh, and and pervaded the the civil society and uh, the culture. 
so retrospectively, I think that I can uh, see a little bit uh, better. So the situation of that time. So the Communist Party and the Christian democracy had uh, rebuilt a civil society and created a democracy at the end of the Second World War, after more than 20 years uh, of fascism. But uh, when my generation came, the first generation uh, who hadn't uh, experienced uh, the Second World War and resistance, uh, these two political forces no longer appeared as actors of a social and uh, political change, but rather as uh, the walls of a kind of uh, iron cage that paralyzed the country, not only politically, because uh, the political system was uh, fixed and frozen, we were in the, in the time of, of the Cold War, but, uh, but also culturally speaking. And uh, I think that uh, the, at that time it was called La Nuova Sinistra, the, the new left, or the extra-parliamentary left, uh, the revolutionary left, uh, was an attempt uh, to destroy the walls of, of this iron cage. So I think it's important to say that the extra-parliamentary left failed politically because our project was <laughs> nothing less than making a revolution in Italy. And uh, a revolution in Italy didn't <laughs> take place. And uh, we paid a very high price for this failure because the consequences were terrorism, were depolitization of society in the 80s. And, and finally, I think uh, uh, the outcome was neoliberalism, uh, an almost new form of, of neoliberalism without any alternative. But culturally speaking, we won because uh, many social conquests, uh, many rights uh, for uh, minorities, uh, so the struggles of rebellious movements of feminism. So these changed society and these pushed uh, these two churches, so a secular church is in the, the Communist Party and uh, another church uh, which was organically related with uh, so the Catholic religion, so were compelled uh, to abandon many cultural codes that they had embodied in for decades. You, you say that, you know, that your aim is to rehabilitate the concept of revolution as an interpretive key to modern history against a school that began to, to really gain ground in the, after 1989, and which has argued that, you know, changing the world always means building totalitarianism. And I think you're referring to historians like François Furet, Yet you hardly deny the human costs of revolution and the injustices that it can generate in correcting injustice. Um, your subject is revolution for better or worse. So what is it about revolution that you think deserves rehabilitation? Is it the dream and aspiration, the history of collective struggle, or the concrete achievement? 
Well, I, I don't think that it's uh, so productive to sketch uh, a kind of typology of good uh, or bad revolutions. Uh, my worry and my purpose was to rehabilitate the concept of revolution as a key to uh, interpret modernity. And I thought that this was important because with the turn of the century and with the end of, of, of the Cold War, the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, I think that a certain view of the past appeared in which the 20th century is perceived as the age of total wars, uh, genocides, uh, and the age of violence. And revolution uh, was to a, part a of that history. large extent... It was, was very much a part of that yeah, history. It was engulfed in this view of the 20th century as the age of violence. I tried to show that the 20th century was also the history of revolutions, and it was also the history of uh, extraordinary hopes and aspirations, and it was also the age of uh, utopias and uh, the age of struggles, collective struggles for changing the word. Emancipation and freedom. You know, your book actually begins earlier than the 20th century. It begins in the Louvre with a discussion of Théodore Géricault's 1819 painting, The Raft of Medusa, and an allegory of what you call the shipwreck of revolution. What is it about that painting that spoke to you so powerfully? Why did you begin the book with The Raft of Medusa? So the Rafta of, uh, of Medusa is one of the most important paintings of, of uh, romantic art from the age of restoration, and it describes a shipwreck a shipwreck with this raft of outcasts, of survivors of this shipwreck who are waiting for salvage. So I think that uh, all artworks, and particularly all masterpieces, uh, change their meaning with uh, with time. So I agree with uh, art historians uh, and art critics who think that uh, images uh, look at us, <laughs> are not passive objects uh, which can be admired and uh, contemplated. And uh, at any time, uh, works of art can uh, transmit new messages and new meanings. And looking at this painting at the end of the 20th century or today, inevitably, in my view, interrogates or rises questions about the shipwreck of socialist revolutions. And one of the things that we notice looking at this painting today is the black man who is the sort of towering figure in the painting waving a a red rag or a, or a handkerchief like a flag. Um, and this is less than 20 years after the Haitian Revolution. Yeah, this uh, figure of a black man agitating this flag uh, 
this red flag <laughs> in this painting in a time in which uh, red flag didn't e exist yet <laughs> because uh, as, uh, the red flag uh, will appear later as symbols of, of uh, rebellion or of the left. But uh, this black man can be interpreted uh, as both uh, hidden reference to the Asian revolution so the first uh, emancipatory revolution against uh, slavery and also the announcement of uh, the revolutions of the, of, of the 19th century, but also for us <laughs> who watch this uh, painting today, so the announcement of the colonial revolutions of, of, of the 20th century. So this so painting is extremely rich and is a condensation of, of meanings. The main inspirations behind your approach to rev revolution are Karl Marx and Walter Benjamin, but as you point out, they have very different conceptions of how revolution relates to historical time. Marx said that revolutions can't draw their poetry from the past. Benjamin saw revolutions as a kind of redemption for the suffering of oppressed ancestors. Yeah, I think that uh, Benjamin consciously criticized Marx and uh, changed uh, the conventional concept of revolution. For uh, And so this is the reason for which I decided to start my book with a chapter on revolutions as uh, locomotives of history. This is a famous uh, Marxist metaphor of revolution. And I think that this is more than a metaphor because it's a metaphor that summarizes, uh, synthesizes uh, a worldview, a certain view of history, a certain uh, teleological... A view of history as linear and teleological, and yet... Of course. And yet even Marx didn't see revolutions as emerging in any linear or teleological fashion, right? They were, revolutions were eruptions. Yeah. I point out that uh, there is uh, a tension in, in uh, Marx's work between his uh, philosophy of history, which is uh, not in all his writings, but in, in most of his canonical works is shaped by a certain teleological vision of history, history as a linear march towards progress, and also he theorized revolution as a kind of outcome of this contrast conflict between the development of productive forces and the relations of, of production. Uh, so he thought revolutions as the outcome of, of a certain deterministic causality. And so this view of revolutions as the locomotives of history uh, obviously implies a certain teleological vision of history because uh, trains and locomotives uh, run uh, along uh, railways and, and, and uh, we know the destination of these trains. So Benjamin, uh, during the Second World War, at the beginning of the Second World War, in cataclysmic context, uh, uh, in which uh, the idea of progress was radically put into question, he reversed uh, this 
image of revolution, and they said revolutions are not uh, the locomotives of history, but rather the emergency brake allowing us to stop this uh, race of, of the train uh, towards uh, a catastrophe. So I think that uh, the history of uh, revolutions uh, is uh, a permanent swinging between <laughs> these two poles. Uh, revolutions uh, as uh, a quite naive and generous race towards the future and revolutions uh, as attempts at uh, stop incumbent uh, catastrophe. Now, your book has an unusual structure. It, it, it touches on a variety of revolutionary moments from 1789 to the mid-20th century, but it's not chronological. Rather, it's organized around what Benjamin called dialectical images. You define dialectical images as lamps that cast a light over the past. They include locomotive trains, which you just mentioned, bodies, statues, flags, posters, individual lives. And you argue that these dialectical images are important not just to how we see revolutions, but to how they're imagined and made by participants themselves. Yeah, I tried to work with a methodological reference, which was so Benjamin's Passagenwerk, so his book on... on uh, the, pa the Paris Arcades. The Paris Arcades, so which is a constellation of, uh, of dialectical images or thought images uh, in his uh, definition, Denkbilder. So images uh, as both historical sources, as evidences in the classical meaning of the word. So evidences with which uh, historians work, evidences uh, that uh, fill the historian uh, workshop, but at the same time, images as visualize the concept or as figures uh, allowing us to visualize uh, concepts. Uh, images as condensation of uh, meanings and uh, as tools which can help uh, scholars uh, to interpret and to understand the past because uh, our analytical categories can be fixed into something visible so that can be visualized. And uh, I thought that uh, this way of uh, working, uh, this procedure could be more interesting rather than a quite conventional chronological approach to revolutions, because my purpose wasn't to describe the history of revolutions, which is known, very well known, and is a topic to which very good books have already been devoted. But my purpose was to capture something that belongs to the revolutionary imagination, revolutionary experience, and to revolutionary ideas. I mean, you also write about how revolutions were imagined by their adversaries and enemies. In the, There's a fascinating chapter on the body, how the bodies of the oppressed were, uh, were seen. And you, you write that uh, the the enemies of revolution have always animalized the oppressed. Uh, you quote an especially grisly passage 
comparing the Bolshevik Revolution to, quote, an animal form of barbarism embodied by swarms of typhus-bearing vermin or troops of ferocious baboons amid the ruins of cities and the corpses of their victims. The writer is not Hitler. The writer is not Goebbels. It's Winston Churchill writing in 1920. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these uh, counter-revolutionary literature is extremely rich, pittoresque, <laughs> when it's read posteriorly. So retrospectively, I, I, I would say that I'm, I'm literally fascinated by the power of these counter-revolutionary imagination from uh, Joseph de Mestre to Carl Schmitt and uh, Churchill plays a distinguished role in this gallery of, of uh, counter-revolutionary thinkers. So this uh, mixture of uh, animalization of uh, political rebellion in which uh, animals uh, are very often assimilated to inferior, lower races. So this uh, mixture of uh, animal allegories, uh, of uh, racism, uh, class racism, uh, lower classes uh, assimilated to savages, animals, and lower classes. And uh, so this mixture of uh, colonialism and anti-Semitism is extremely powerful. I mean, this was the subject of your origins of Nazi violence, and I think you, you depicted very vividly how the language of racialization and animalization within Nazism was not that far from what one could observe in the discourse of other forms of Western imperialism. I mean, it was given a biological scientific uh, foundation, of course, but um, the, the distance from Churchill's remark to to Nazism is not that far here. No, I, I think that uh, it could be, and I did, so very easy to uh, find correspondences. So almost mechanical analogies between a uh, uh, reactionary discourse uh, that appeared in France after the Paris Commune, the communards uh, depicted as beasts. So the language, uh, the lexicon of uh, counter-revolution in Central Europe uh, at the end of the First World War and the way in which uh, Bolshevism was depicted by conservative literature and uh, finally, the Nazi literature, the Nazi literature, which uh, so accomplished uh, this uh, larger trajectory of counter-revolutionary literature. We, we tend to think of the French Revolution and, and its successors, which replaced systems based on monarchical rule, religious authority, and so on as expressions of a secular enlightenment. But you argue that what we see, in fact, is a transfer of sacredness from religion and tradition to secular values, from the worship of God, the saints, the church, uh, and, and the king, to the worship of secular values like freedom, equality, humanity, nation, and reason. Uh, to illustrate this point, uh, you quote a figure who's not at all a person of the left, uh, the Nazi jurist Carl Schmitt, who said that, all significant concepts of the modern theory of the state are secularized theological concepts. What, what does that mean? I think that uh, Carl Schmitt uh, uh, understood a very significant feature of uh, modern politics in general, and also 
indirectly because this wasn't his purpose when he wrote this sentence in his political theology, but also in order to understand the, the trajectory of certain revolutionary movements. And uh, from this point of view, I think that Carl Schmitt's uh, diagnostic uh, is uh, quite close to Ernst Bloch's interpretation of utopian imagination in history. If we have to say in a word, uh, which is the relationship between uh, religion and revolution, I would say that uh, it's a conflicting relationship because uh, modern revolutions uh, always uh, perceived the uh, religion as an uh, ideology of the power, as institution of uh, the uh, established uh, order, and also as a form of uh, alienation and uh, of, of domination. So revolutions uh, usually with very few exceptions, Iran, for instance, in 1979, but usually revolutions uh, are directed against religion. And sometimes uh, in a very radical and, and violent way. So think of uh, the Spanish Civil War and the anarchist violence against uh, the church and all symbols of of, of against, religion. Uh, against institutional religion, but but you are suggesting that there is this transfer of the sacred, that there is something that that they that the, that, that revolutions do speak to certain longings and uh, fantasies that religion had spoken to previously. Yeah, this is the idea of Ernst Bloch, uh, who stressed uh, that modern socialism and communism secularized hopes, aspirations, desires, which historically had been embodied by religions. And so Marx and Engels themselves established a kind of continuity between the peasant war in Germany at the time uh, in the 16th century and modern class struggle. So from this point of view, I think that uh, Karl Schmitt's sentence uh, is uh, perfectly valuable and can be fruitfully applied. And the, the 20th century is also an age of strange uh, hybrid forms between secularism and uh, and religion. There are some heretical thinkers, uh, revolutionary thinkers, uh, like Benjamin, for instance, uh, who tried to uh, find uh, a kind of synthesis between uh, secular Marxism and uh, Jewish messianism, for instance. And th this is the reason for which they were misunderstood for, for during their life and, and for, for many years uh, after. So when uh, Walter Benjamin uh, showed his uh, famous, now famous 
thesis on the concept of history to his friends. So Brecht reacted saying, so this is a wonderful revolution, revolutionary document, but I don't understand why it is written in this strange and bizarre uh, messianic uh, uh, language. And, and Scholem said exactly the opposite. So this is a wonderful theological document, but I don't understand why the, the, you write with these uh, ununderstandable uh, references to Marxism <laughs> and to class struggle. So Benjamin's uh, attitude was uh, very peculiar and quite uh, irreceivable at that time. But nonetheless, uh, so these hybrid forms of uh, conflation or of uh, entanglement between religion and revolution were extremely important. Uh, think of uh, these category, these um, forged by Isaac Deutscher of the non-Jewish Jews. Uh, the non-Jewish Jews like uh, so Marx uh, or Rosa Luxemburg or Trotsky, or he said also Freud, so who uh, rejected Judaism as a form of obscurantism as vestige of, of, of the past. So like uh, any kind of religion, a form of alienation, an ideology of oppression, and they, they wished to uh, abandon this past, uh, which was their own background, but at the same time, they claimed they, their own Jewishness because they acted and lived surrounded by anti-Semitism in a cultural and political context in which they couldn't avoid their Jewish roots. And this created this fascinating figure of the non-Jewish Jew. But uh, so we could extend this example, speaking about the theology of liberation in, in, in Latin America, for instance, or even in, in Europe, in Western Europe, in Italy, for instance, the conflicting, but at the same time, uh, fruitful relationships uh, between uh, religious uh, currents within uh, social Catholicism and uh, secular communism. But you, you also talk about some of the more troubling aspects of this religious or sacred strain within, re within revolution. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the idea of social regeneration through violence or the, the purging of enemies, the creation of the so-called new man and the, the rise of communist parties that, as Edgar Morin writes, and you quote him, were as strict, authoritarian, and as secretive as the Catholic Church. You also mentioned uh, Trotsky's fascination with eugenics at one point. And uh, it, it, well, it just made me think that, you know, while revolutions are a break in the continuum of history, um, they interrupt history, you know, to, to paraphrase Benjamin, but they're also very much products of specific histories and so shaped and limited by them. And so, you know, what you describe is not just uh, uh, revolutions that, that display this, you know, enormous human creativity, but also the, the tragic limitations they express. Well, I distinguish between uh, different dimensions of uh, of revolution, revolution as uh, as an, a concept, as an abstract category. So, revolution is uh, usually split 
between liberating emancipatory uh, moment, which is uh, ephemeral, and which is the moment uh, which happens. Uh, the, the, the joy in the street moment, the moment yeah, of yeah. creation. The moment in which the old order falls apart and is destroyed and in which the dominated, the oppressed, the lower classes suddenly discover their strength, suddenly become historical subjects and achieve this consciousness that they are able to change society and history. This is a, a kind of magical moment. I, I call him it the Eisensteinian moment of, of, of revolution. But uh, so there is another dimension of revolution, which is uh, the difficult uh, suffering process of uh, building of a new order a new social and political order, when revolutions are not defeated, as it occurs in most uh, cases. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's LRB dot me forward slash listen or click on the link below. One of the more interesting figures you write about who very much illustrates the point that you've just made is is Alexandra Kollontai, this uh, Soviet uh, radical who exemplified the contradictions between sexual liberationism and hedonism on the one hand and the and asceticism and puritanism on the other i mean she was a an advocate of red love and imagined this radical recasting of familial and erotic relations but her vision of liberation ended up losing out to a, a puritanical strain in soviet communism yeah so this is exactly uh, the illustration of uh, this uh, divide I mentioned between a revolution as uh, an emancipatory moment and a revolution as a, the process of building of a new political regime. And uh, Kollontai theorized the sexual revolution uh, in 1917, so in a time in which most uh, countries in Western world didn't give uh, the right of vote to, to the women. And revolution as the process of uh, building of a new regime with an ideology and with the restoration also of uh, old form of, forms of life. And from this point of view, so the reference to religion and uh, to the reference to socialism or communism as a secular religion uh, becomes pertinent because uh, a secular religion with uh, its own uh, institutions, with uh, its uh, own hierarchy, with with uh, its uh, ideology, with its uh, rituals, liturgies, customs, uh, and uh, these 
this is a, a very uh, significant and large part of the history of revolutions uh, viewed as a global process. I, I want to go back to a point that you were making earlier about the about the people uh, Isaac Deutscher called uh, non-Jewish Jews. In your chapter on the revolutionary intellectual 1848 to 1945, you, you return to a theme that you explored in your first book, Marxism and the Jewish Question, namely the mutual attraction of Jews and revolution in Eastern and Central Europe. Jews, you point out, represented between a fourth and a third of the central committee of both the Menshevik and Bolshevik parties uh, in 1917. Uh, and Jews continued through much of the first half of the 20th century to be disproportionately represented in left-wing and revolutionary movements. Why do, why do you think um, revolutions attracted so many Jews? Well, this is a fascinating uh, chapter uh, in the history of both uh, modern revolutions, uh, in the history of, of, of uh, Marxism, and in the history of, uh, of the Jews uh, themselves, uh, of course. I think that uh, this uh, kind of uh, elective affinity, <laughs> speaking with Goethe and with uh, Mikhail Löw, between uh, the Jews and revolution, and in this case, between the end of the 19th century and the mid and the Second World War, was uh, the product of uh, historical circumstances. So I don't think that we could uh, explain that uh, through the peculiarities of uh, Judaism uh, as uh, a religion, because Jewish messianism uh, is susceptible to merge with uh, revolutionary ideas and uh, and mode and secular uh, revolutionary ideologies, as well as uh, uh, Christianity and uh, Christian millenarism, or even in certain parts of, of the of the world, uh, Indonesia. Asia, for instance, uh, Islam and, uh, and uh, revolution. So in Europe, and particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, between the end of the 19th century and the Second World War, the Jews, and particularly intellectual, uh, Jewish intellectuals, uh, were exposed to all the contradictions and tensions of, of their time. And uh, they were uh, pushed uh, by their own uh, social conditions, and uh, they were pushed to embrace uh, avant-garde currents, uh, and uh, they were pushed towards all kind of anti-conformistic uh, political currents. And they almost naturally became the leaders of, of, of many uh, revolutionary movements. And I, and I suppose also Marxism represented a, a, an ideal of universal emancipation, of, of, of so, and therefore emancipation from their own communities as well. What, what I mean, from anti-Semitism, but also from the confines of the Jewish community. Yeah, in this sense, I, I, I spoke of, uh, so they embodied the, 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 the contradictions of, of, of their time. And uh, so they rejected the Judaism. On the one hand, uh, they no longer depicted themselves uh, as uh, Jews 
in a national or religious meaning of the word. At the same time, they were in both the Central and Eastern Europe, they were rejected by nationalisms uh, which were anti-Semitic. Marxism was a kind of uh, universalism that uh, allowed them to overcome this uh, tension between, between a rejected and uh, abandoned Judaism and the rejection by nationalism. And yet, interestingly, Enzo, in your first book, you also argued that the Jewish question revealed the blindness of the Marxist tradition to the significance of both religion and nation uh, in the modern world. And you, you, act, you also went on to say that the Jewish question revealed classical Marxism's blindness to other forms of domination not directly related to the class structure of society, such as national race and gender oppression. So Marxism, on the one hand, was salvation, to, to the left-wing Jews who embraced it, and yet at the same time, Marxism represented a real blind spot with respect to Jewish identity, also with respect to colonialism. Yeah, exactly, exactly, because uh, uh, Marxism offered this uh, form of uh, universalism and internationalism that became their own identity, and many uh, intellectuals uh, I study in my book, uh, so were people who believed in uh, world revolution, and world revolution had uh, become their identity and their home. This is perfectly true. At the same time, Marxism, and from this point of view, Marxism was the narrator of what is, uh, so roughly speaking, called uh, radical enlightenment. Marxism inherited from the enlightenment uh, a criticism of religion, which tended to analyze anti-Semitism as a kind of a, um, an archaic, a vestige of the past, uh, as an archaism, uh, sur a, a, survive, a surviving atavistic prejudice that would one day simply yeah, vanish. Yeah. And couldn't, uh, really, couldn't really see how it could be weaponized as a modern ideology yeah. under Nazism. A legacy of, of, of a pre-modern age. So they were absolutely unable to understand that uh, anti-Semitism was uh, a central feature of uh, a reactionary modernism, of uh, an ideology that uh, didn't, like fascism or uh, national socialism in particular, which uh, didn't uh, look at the past, but rather defended uh, an utopian vision of, of the future. And, Anti-Semitism was uh, a key of uh, reactionary modernism. You know, revolution is also striking for being the, perhaps the least Eurocentric of your books. Um, in The Origins of Nazi Violence, you, you discuss the relationship of imperialism and colonization to the Jewish genocide. But here you go even further in decentering Europe. You include figures uh, like uh, the Indian communist, uh, Manabendra Roth, Nath Roy, Jose Rizal in the Philippines, Ho Chi Minh, Mao, the Peruvian Marxist, Jose Carlos Maria Tegui, CLR James, Franz Fanon. Anti-colonial revolution, revolutionaries uh, from what you know today is called the Global South also affected another important shift in the revolutionary imagination that you describe, 
a more positive appraisal of the role of the peasantry in political change. Sure. And, uh, but uh, this, uh, this change was uh, theorized by, by Mao in particular. And uh, was, uh, so this change was internalized by Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam and uh, was uh, posteriorly both uh, theorized and practiced by the guerrilla movement in Latin America. So this change uh, was very significant because it broke with uh, one of the premises of of classical Marxism, uh, according to which uh, peasantry was a conservative class. A sack of potatoes. Yeah, yeah. So because uh, Marx's view of uh, the peasantry was deeply shaped by uh, the experience of French Bonapartism. And in, according to Marx, uh, French peasantry was one of the social bases of uh, Bonapartism. But uh, Marx uh, himself uh, started viewing peasantry with uh, different lens uh, at the end of his life when he took contact with the Russian translators of, of Capital, who had been involved in the populist movement in Russia. And the populist movement, which had a peasant basis and an intellectual leadership. So some premises existed for, for this change, which was formalized uh, with uh, the colonial revolutions of, of the 20th century. Now, you know, you, you quote Edgar Morin as saying that the communist experience represented a monstrous step of a gigantic adventure to change the world. I'm wondering, how do we disentangle what was noble about it from the monstrosity of the purges, collectivization, the gulag, to say nothing of the, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution? the genocide in Cambodia. And my question really is, did the left abandon revolution in part because of the excesses, the oppression, the carnage that the revolutionary project left behind? Is that why we end up with the, you know, the critique of people like Foucault or, or Deleuze of the kind of grand revolutionary project? This is a question that uh, runs uh, throughout uh, my book, And my answer is that uh, these uh, radically different and intimately opposed dimensions of of communism belong to the history of revolutions and are not separable. Hmm. And uh, this is the point. So I, for many years, when I was young, I lived with this comfortable illusion that we could radically separate communism as revolution from communism as a political regime, Leninism as revolution, and Stalinism as counter-revolution. And finally, I understood I think I have understood that uh, this uh, binary logic doesn't work. I mean, in a sense, it sounds as though you are coming to terms with the limitations of a certain kind of sectarian Marxism, right? Or sectarian Trotskyism, for which Stalinism was always the perversion 
of, of the Leninist project, but really it has to be understood in some way in relation to it. Sure, but uh, so this is one of the reasons for which uh, my book uh, is not a nostalgic book it is in, and it's not a book that uh, tries to idealize revolution or to build a kind of idea of a romantic or beautiful ideal type. So revolutions are at the same time moments of emancipation without which what humanity achieved in in modernity wouldn't be understandable. And revolutions are at the same time moments of domination, oppression, of destruction of all these emancipatory hopes and and practices. So uh, I, I... Stalinism can be, of course, considered as a counter-revolution insofar as it destroyed many aspirations and hopes and many values affirmed by the Russian Revolution in 1917. But Stalinism wasn't a counter-revolution because the, the purpose of Stalin wasn't to restore capitalism or to come back to the old regime. Stalin had a true aspiration to build a new society, and he did. So Stalinist Russia was uh, an extremely authoritarian and bureaucratic and horrific and totalitarian project of modernization. You you know, you say at some point that the new anti-capitalist movements of our own times don't resonate with any of the left traditions of the past. You say they lack a genealogy and reveal greater affinities with anarchism. Being orphans, they must reinvent themselves. Are they orphans or do they just have different parents? I think they are orphans. They are orphans because uh, the anarchist and libertarian features which uh, one can detect in these new movements don't mean conscious continuity with the anarchism of uh, the 19th or 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 20th century. I think that uh, these new movements are really trying to invent uh, uh, something new, and this is uh, their strength. I think that uh, they already achieved many important, uh, significant uh, results in this process. But but I don't think that uh, a new project for the 21st century could be elaborated, uh, invented, uh, and and practicized without uh, working through the past, uh, without, uh, without elaborating a memory of a defeat. And this memory meant uh, in in the largest uh, uh, sense of the word, this memory also implies, uh, also supposes uh, to include communism and Stalinism in this dialectic of enlightenment. Because the dialectic of enlightenment is a concept that was forged by the Frankfurt School adorned in, in, in relation in relation in, to fascism. In relation to fascism, but so their idea was that fascism was not a throwback of civilization into into a, a pre-modern form of barbarism. Uh, fascism was an outcome of civilization itself. 
And uh, the idea of uh, the dialectic of enlightenment means that uh, uh, so the development of so industrial, technological and scientific uh, development uh, and progress uh, can correspond with uh, human and social regression. And I think that uh, this dialectic of enlightenment uh, works also with uh, communism and Stalinism. The difference is that, uh, so in fascism, the dialectical of enlightenment uh, uh, for fascism means uh, fascism as reactionary modernism, fascism as an hybrid symbiosis between uh, the values inherited from anti-enlightenment the rejection of universalism, of humanism, of the French Revolution, and so on, and a cult of technology, of modernity, of, of industry, of science, etc. The case of, of communism is different because under Stalin, the dialectic of enlightenment is the illustration of uh, the outcomes of uh, an authoritarian interpretation of enlightenment itself. So the gulag, the collectivization of agriculture in, in Soviet Russia or uh, Chernobyl cannot be dissociated from a certain conception, a certain view of socialism as development of productive forces. Productivism. And, Productiv and, right. Yeah, and uh, as a development of technology, as the advance of civilization. Well, maybe uh, this concept of dialectic of enlightenment, which in, in the Soviet Union too, means this uh, combination between uh, technical uh, industrial progress and uh, uh, social regression, but uh, could be, I think, uh, related to Ernst Bloch's concept of, of cold utopias. So uh, a project for the, for the future, which is an authoritarian utopia, the utopia of an egalitarian, society, but not uh, created by self-management, uh, self-emancipated uh, human beings, but uh, created, planned, and built by I think, uh, I think, I think, an authoritarian power. Didn't, didn't, didn't Gramsci call that a passive revolution? Yeah, but uh, Gramsci called uh, passive revolutions uh, some uh, revolutions from above, and right. from this point of view, maybe Stalinism could be uh, included in this category. So Stalinism as a revolution from above in a pacified and stabilized Russia, different from a revolution from below, which was 1970. I mean, one of the great strengths of your, of your book, Enzo, is that it is at the same time a celebration or a kind of admiring commemoration of the revolutionary passion and of the revolutionary efforts of the past, and at the same time, to some extent, a cautionary tale. And I wondered, what would you like the contemporary left-wing movements, which you described as orphans of history, what would you like them to take away from this book about movements of which, in, in, in many cases, they're you know, they're unaware. 
maybe not in this book, in my previous book, Left-Wing Melancholia, I, I tried to analyze this lack of memory in uh, these new anti-capitalist uh, alternative movements. And I think that this lack of memory is not a peculiar weakness of this movement, is a general feature of our of the postmodern condition yeah regime of historicity more than postmodern condition i would say of our regime of historicity uh, which some scholars call the presentism so a time in which both uh, past and future are condensed and compacted compressed in into the present and uh, this uh, lack of uh, memory on the one hand and this incapacity to project uh, themselves into the future on the other hand is uh, a limitation not only of uh, left uh, the new left-wing movements, uh, is also a limitation of the right-wing movements. If you look at uh, so these uh, constellation of uh, right-wing movements, radical rights that uh, appeared everywhere in, in the last uh, decade, so they are uh, looking at the past much more than uh, projecting themselves uh, uh, towards uh, the future. So these paralysis in uh, utopian imagination, this uh, lack of uh, prognostic uh, projection is uh, the most uh, significant handicap of, of, mm -hmm. of the left today. I mean, Once, before... uh, so the, the, the walls of this uh, presentist uh, regime of historicity will be broken, I think that uh, we, will, we will know new forms of uh, radicality, of rebellion, like in the 60s or the 70s. In your book, Where Have the Intellectuals Gone?, you, you write, the world cannot live without utopias, and it will invent new ones. What seems certain to me is that there will no longer be revolutions made in the name of communism, or at least not the communism of the 20th century. Communism was engendered by an age of wars, and it conceived of revolution on the basis of a military paradigm, and that age is over. One can formulate the hypothesis that future revolutions will not be communist in the manner of the 20th century, but that they will be made for a common good that has to be rescued from commercial reification. Revolutions arise from social and political crises without resulting from a law of history or any deterministic causality. They are invented and their form is always uncertain. So that's where we are right now, isn't it, Enzo? We're waiting to see what new kinds of revolutions people imagine and invent, because in your telling, at least, revolution, the idea of a utopia, is a human need. Yeah, but uh, maybe one of the reasons for which uh, the new alternative and left-wing movements uh, are unable to critically elaborate the legacy of the past and uh, the legacy of both ideology and political experiences of the past is that uh, these new movements uh, uh, are facing 
the threat of a world going towards an ecological catastrophe, we have to think a new civilization, new forms of consumption of energetic sources for our economies. But all revolutions of the past faced completely different problems. For the Chinese revolution, for the Russian revolution in Vietnam, in Cuba, the, the problem of the development of productive forces was a primary, a priority, was a fundamental problem. These revolutions, in many cases, took place in countries destroyed by wars, in countries whose economies were completely destroyed, and they had to reconstruct and to develop. And the development meant many things. In my chapter on revolutionary bodies, I, I try to show how Kollontai's thesis on sexual revolutions merged with essential needs, which were productivized and disciplined bodies in order to reconstruct destroyed economies. So from this point of view, the experience of the Russian or the Chinese revolution or the Cuban revolution is uh, understandable for the new generations uh, on the global world. Mm. This is the dialectic of, of 21st century uh, memory and, and, and utopias. We've been talking with Enzo Traverso, the author of Revolution, an intellectual history published by Verso. Enzo, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Adam.